0: All right, hey everyone, welcome back to the Barbell Medicine YouTube channel, podcast, Instagram, wherever you're getting this from. I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, this is Barbell Medicine, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. Uh, hey, we're just doing this live Q&A sort of thing and we'll start out by talking about collagen protein. Uh, I got a lot of questions in my inbox about this. Uh, there was a sort of exchange and, uh, you know, not debate, but discussion about this already on the supplement thread in the Barbell Medicine forums. Um, So we'd actually considered coming out with a collagen protein that was gonna have some green tea epicatechins uh, in it. This is based off of Dr. Barr's research. And you know, honestly, it's super fascinating. I pulled close to and then posted most of these studies. I think it was 50, something like that. Um, And I think I posted Forty of them, or thirty-five, something like that, of the studies. The deal on the the research on collagen. Um, so there's like three real main things that people claim that it does. So one, people claim that it's a good protein source, just you know, compared to like whey or uh, a plant protein source. Other people will claim that it's good for uh, injury. Uh, particularly when they talk about tendons, uh, like tendon recovery from tendinopathy or tendon pain in general, um, which is a weird and a whole nother deal. And then other people claim it's good for like skin, hair, et cetera, et cetera. So from a protein standpoint, no, unequivocally no. The collagen protein is not a great source for this. The essential amino acid content is not very high, especially when you consider the cost of the thing. Whey protein crushes collagen protein. The bioavailability is not so great either, um, but effectively from a protein supplement standpoint, collagen protein is not a viable solution for that. From a uh, tendon repair and particularly tendon pain standpoint, so what we have to do is look at does collagen protein improve pain outcomes relative to placebo um, and then not get lost in the weeds with sort of this potential physiological mechanism? So there's some research in, in petri dishes and, um, you know, small animal models suggesting that collagen protein can improve tendon, a uh, sort of like the, the cellular components of tendon repair and remodeling. And in humans, there's very small studies suggesting that collagen uh, supplementation, particularly with these green tea epicatecans, uh, that that can work uh, as far as like improving or increasing the amount of tendon sort of uh, regeneration. That being said, that's not correlated to pain scores and pain outcomes. So in reality, you don't necessarily care what your tendon is doing from a sort of biological only standpoint, you're worried about the pain. And so we don't have good data uh, suggesting that collagen supplementation improves pain outcomes. And then we also don't have good evidence that improving the integrity of the tendon actually improves pain scores when we're, unless we're talking about like a tendon rupture that's been surgically repaired. So we don't have good evidence that collagen supplementation does uh, uh, improves pain. And we also, again, these very small studies don't aren't really strong enough to suggest that collagen protein improves tendon remodeling or anything like that. So I wouldn't hang my hat on that just yet. And and again, we were looking to come out with a supplement um, to take advantage of this based on some of this research. But then when you look a little further, it's just really not good. Um, And, you know, you can even see some protocols where it's like vitamin C and collagen protein and green tea epicatechins. And it's just anyway. Uh, yeah, the data doesn't appear to be there yet. And so I don't think that I would hang my hat on that. And then the third thing is like skin, hair, nails, all that other stuff. And again, the data just doesn't reflect that um, unless you were previously deficient in protein or or amino acid intake before. So I wouldn't take collagen protein. I don't see a good use for that. Um, I think that it's a waste of money. And until the data change, you know, based on the data right now, if it changes, we'd be happy to get into that market and, you know, Go forward, but I don't think that you can uh, hang your hat on the existing evidence and suggest that collagen protein is a good use of your funds. Okay, so that was the intro. (laughs) Let's see if we get into some questions here. And all right, we'll scroll all the way back up to the top. Let's see. Do you have any advice on training the squat and deadlift for people with noticeably posterior p- pelvic tilt? I'm having a tough time getting the back flat in the squat with two of my current clients. Um, I don't think that I would diagnose anybody with the posterior or anterior pelvic tilt. And if somebody came to me with that diagnosis, I would try to, uh, get them to stop thinking about that. I wouldn't. That wouldn't also either. That wouldn't change my management on their squat or their deadlift either. I think that people tend to have difficulty setting their back when they're untrained is a general rule, and I think it has nothing to do with their pelvic tilt. Um, as far as strategies to get people to be able to, cons- you know, consciously contract their lower back, musculature. You can do things like isometrics on the floor, like a back extension on the floor, like a Superman. You can do it off a back extension bench. You can use your hand to get them to try to contract, um, all sorts of stuff. Uh, like that. And if they're having trouble doing it at the bottom of the deadlift, you can have them start at the top and then inch their way down with a bar in hand or a dowel or something like that to try to maintain that active sort of neutral position. On the other hand, you might be trying to get them to go into overextension too. I can't, it's hard to say from here, but I wouldn't reliably change anything in my management based on a diagnosis of anterior pelvic tilt and further, I wouldn't diagnose that period. All right. Hopefully that answers your question. Let's see, should you go lower on Romanian deadlifts if you're weak off the floor and not as low if your lockout is your sticking point? Uh, So Romanian deadlift is basically a deadlift starts at the top, it's commonly credited to Niku Vlad who basically walked a deadlift out of the rack and then did it from the top down. Um, I typically advise folks to do the RDL to just below the knee. Um, so an inch or two below the knee, I don't think I would go lower. If you perceive your difficulty to be off the floor, I think most deadlifts are difficult off the floor. And I don't think that I would advise somebody to go higher if they have issues locking it out. I think most lockout problems are due to positional issues. And I don't think the RDL addresses either of those, just like, I don't think that a rack pull, uh, addresses the, the lockout problem either. I think the position, the problem off the, is off the floor uh, as far as your position. So for instance, most people with a lockout problem end up behind the bar, their shoulders are behind the bar and their back is inflection. They have a hard time locking that out without hitching. Uh, people who say they have difficulties off the floor are either in the wrong position off the floor or the weight's too heavy. And so there's no like one exercise that's going to, that one weird trick, that's going to help your deadlift. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I guess, change the RDL's range of motion based on your perceived sort of sticking points, quote unquote. No, I wouldn't do that. The monthly research review is legit. Oh yeah. So in case you guys don't know, we do a monthly research review. It's subscription subscription. It's myself, Dr. Baraki, Dr. Ray, and Dr. Miles. We all pick an article, review it, and then give another like pretty lengthy systematic, not systematic, but a pretty lengthy review with additional citations at the end. We basically try to summarize it in plain language. What are the implications for either health professionals or trainers, stuff like that. And I think it's 24 99 a month. You can head over to the barbell medicine website and subscribe. If you, just want a teaser. You want a taste of it. The January issue is free. And if you want to get all the back issues, you can uh, get the first quarter, uh, that all those combined together. And then, uh, yeah, we publish it the first week of every month. So do you recommend BCAAs? I do not recommend, uh, supplementation with free form BCAAs in isolation. I think that if you have a low protein intake, then you could make an argument for essential amino acids. That would probably be a decent idea. You could use BCAAs too. You know, I'm not, it just really depends what the rest of your diet looks like, but I don't think supplementing with BCAAs in and of themselves is a good idea, no. Is there any evidence to support that fasted cardio in the morning being more effective for weight loss or has that been debunked? That has, I, I guess I wouldn't necessarily call it a myth. It, it It's not I because the myth would be that if you do fasted cardio, you're burning more calories from fat than if you do it later in the day. And that's not necessarily true. Um, really, you're going to burn the same amount of calories in 24 hours or longer if it's the same duration at the same intensity. So it doesn't it doesn't matter when you do it, if you're fed or if you're not fed or anything like that. The bigger issue is if you do it and what intensity you do it at and how compliant you are with the rest of your diet. So I wouldn't you know, insofar as conditioning timing um, is, you know, relevant to how compliant you are. I mean, okay. But I, you know, first thing in the morning doesn't matter to me. Is there any risk of having a very low, is there any risk of having a very low fat in a diet? Oh, this is a weird question. <laughs> is there any risk of having very low fat in a diet with fat only coming from protein and not direct sources? I mean, you're suggesting there's a risk with eating too low of dietary fat in a not in, in when you're not in a calorie deficit um, or in a malnourished situation. I mean, there are essential fatty acids that you need to take in daily. I guess there's a theoretical risk of not having enough dietary fat, but this is not usually a problem for the masses. And I wouldn't. It's a time wasted on useless detail. It's a twud. So it's one of those things that I am not concerned about in any way, shape or form. Let's see, is resistance training just as effective in the treatment of depression as regular exercise? I assume you mean as aerobic exercise, and I don't I haven't seen data where they compare resistance training versus aerobic training. Uh, Oh, actually take that back. I've seen, I have seen, uh, I think it was in one of the meta-analyses, there was a, there was a few papers now that I, now that I think about it a little harder. Um, yeah. So as far as we can tell, they're equivalent. Um, yeah, I wouldn't pick one exercise over one exercise modality over another because it has better depression outcomes as an adjunctive treatment. So, yeah. Do you think there are serious long-term effects of getting less than seven hours of sleep on a regular nightly basis? Uh, So this is a good question. The answer is, I don't, it's not that I think that, but the data has established that yes, in fact, there are long-term negative outcomes associated with not getting enough sleep if it goes on for too long. How long is too long? We don't really know. We know that as soon as, you know, one night, of decreased sleep, and that you know, and, and it's certainly, uh, multiple nights in a row of decreased sleep can severely impact a person's physiology. Uh, but yeah, people who sleep less than seven hours a night—that's not good. Um, Nate Gordon is our—he's uh, our resident sleep fellow, um, <laughs> so he'll—he'll he'll be coming on the Barbell Medicine channel, talking more about sleep um, and what we know, what we don't know. I mean. If you're going to be, if you're going to be short on sleep for a short period of time, I wouldn't, it doesn't matter to me, you know, if if that's happening, I mean, it's unfortunate, but you know, you're going to be fine. But if it's years and years and years of not sleeping enough, like I think I would try to, to fix that Yeah. Morning doc, in one of your videos, you mentioned that you dissected over 300 lower body extremities looking for a VMO. What was that all about? And did you have any luck finding one? Yeah, so the idea was, does the vastus medialis obliquus uh, exist? And so for those of you who aren't in the know, in the 60s, uh, I believe it was the 60s or late 50s, these uh, physical therapists took four freshly amputated lower extremities and noted that the distal or bottom end of the medial quadriceps muscle, which is the vastus medialis, the most medial quadriceps muscles, the vastus medialis, they noticed that the distal end of these four freshly amputated legs had obliquely running fibers. They so dubbed this muscle the vastus medialis obliquus and it's kind of grown in folklore since then, like it has its own function, its own, uh, you know, it can be weak and that causes knee pain, et cetera, et cetera. So the idea is that, the idea I had was, hey, does this thing even exist? Like, is it its own muscle? Does it have its own epimysium, which is the sheath that surrounds a muscle? Does it have its own innervation, meaning it's separate from the vastus medialis and can be selectively contracted? Uh, so is this actually implicated in, you know, in knee pain, for instance? Uh, and the answer is no. Like, you just dissected over 300 of these lower extremities. This is a repeat experiment that's already been done in a paper that's published in the, uh, was it the Journal of Clinical Anatomy? Yeah. And so. We just looked for a VMO. Does it have its own epimysium? Does it have its own nerve supply? Does it, you know, have its own function? And no, and that coincides with actual functional studies, which you can't selectively activate the VMO. Um, There was actually some data or some some researchers, uh, clinician scientists who were thinking, hey, well, there's distal, there's fibers at the end of the vastus lateralis, the most lateral quadriceps muscle that are oblique as well. Maybe we should... uh, called out the, the vastus lateralis obliquus and renamed the quadriceps the uh, the sexticeps, which uh, the nomina anatomica shot down. <laughs> so yeah, so, you know, as far as nomenclature goes. Um, so as best as I can summarize this is, I went looking for a VMO to see if it's a thing, and it's not a thing that you can uh, determine anatomically and functionally, you cannot isolate the VMO contraction from the rest of the quad, the VMO, when people say VMO weakness is associated with knee pain, that is a reductionist and incomplete view of knee pain also happens to be wrong. As far as where knowing about a VMO or like how this anatomically actually comes into play, it's for like a surgical, procedures particularly knee replacements and knee and amputations either above or below the knee there are like four different it's either grades yeah i think there's four grades of vmos basically how distally the the muscle belly and the tendon actually go um so where you would actually sacrifice or make your surgical incision i'm not a surgeon but uh that in was in a netter uh uh surgical atlas that that actual fact and so i, I don't know how relevant that is today because uh, again I'm not a surgeon but yeah that's the uh the story with me and vmos how much would you use the barbell hip thrust for accessory movement in powerlifting so the barbell hip thrust yeah so you know not just for fits anymore the barbell hip thrust i actually like this exercise for um, people who aren't necessarily going to a powerlifting meet they just want to train and get and get stronger. So just general resistance training, and uh, I also like it for non-specific work for uh, powerlifting. That being said, the joint angles, contraction type, and sort of the way it's loaded is very non-specific to powerlifting. Um, you know, you think about that anterior-posterior force production versus um, you know vertically, uh, like the squat and the deadlift. It's just not that specific. So I would use it in developmental blocks or GPP blocks. Uh, for power, people who are actually gonna go to a powerlifting meet. If you're not going to a powerlifting meet, you can keep it in longer term, but yeah, good for uh, glute hypertrophy, good for sprinting, good for uh, jumping. Yeah, it's as best as we can tell right now. For collagen, I use it in conjunction with the way RX to make my macros. Is that reasonable? I'm about to run out and debating whether or not to buy another. Yeah, so I don't, I don't think I can recommend collagen supplementation for any particular reason. Um, I If you're adding it to a whey protein, the whey protein itself is already giving you what you want out of a protein supplement. You know, as far as muscle protein synthesis, the collagen is not doing anything else. I wouldn't recommend using a collagen supplement at this time. Hey, Doc, how can I replace the overhead press for more bench work on the bridge? Uh, I probably wouldn't replace the the overhead press for more bench work on the bridge so the bridge 1.0 if you guys don't know is a free program that we put out basically designed is sort of an entryway into barbell medicine programming our style of programming from people either who have been doing uh, linear progression beforehand or any other type of training that you know wasn't it's not very similar to what we recommend so it kind of gives you it's like an on-ramp that being said there's a lot of bench work already in there and one pressing slot and it's not a powerlifting program it doesn't design it's not designed to get you to go to a meet and so i don't think that you should specialize on the bench press in that program i think if you want to specialize on the bench press and go to a powerlifting meet or that's your jam then there are other templates that we sell like or even that have pub, we have published for free so the general intermediate template is on our website uh you can use that it's, Bench specialized and then also the 12 week strength template is also bench specialized, but in the bridge, which is again this sort of bridge between other programming and our programming, we have one slot per week of the press and I probably wouldn't replace that with more benching. Let's see, I have a year off after college and want to beef up my resume thinking about applying as a medical scribe. What are your thoughts? I mean, I, I assume you mean beef up your resume as, a, as for applying to medical school or other professional school. I think if you want to be an ER scribe or medical scribe that gets you, you know, exposure to the profession and gets you, your nomenclature will improve and you'll sort of pick up on things. It seems totally reasonable. Yeah. And uh, I don't think it requires a ton of training prior to getting in compared to like being an EMT or something like that. Although having the skills of an EMT would likely serve you better, but you know, for a year, it seems reasonable. I don't know the requirements though, to be a medical scribe do you find it more difficult to perform the bulldog grip on a 28 and millimeter bar versus a 29 millimeter bar? Uh, no, I don't. If you guys don't know what the bulldog grip is, the idea is the bar is sitting a little bit higher anatomically in your hand and you're pinching, uh, you're pinching the bar with your digits, uh, it allows the wrist to stay in a more, uh, advantageous position for producing power, uh, force, not necessarily power. Sorry. I don't want to misspeak. And, uh, yeah, I don't find it. Dif- there's no difference for me. If you are not a competitive powerlifter and don't plan on ever competing, how crucial is it to hit legal depth when squatting? Um, yeah, it's a pretty good question. So you definitely, there's definitely good evidence to suggest that going below parallel improves the increases the amount of glute and adductor magnus that you use. Uh, excuse me. And so I think from a muscle stimulus standpoint, going below parallel is beneficial compared to go not squatting below parallel. On the other hand, if you are like a sprinter, jumper, you know, something like that, there's good evidence that some of your squat training, if not the majority of your squat training is pro- probably shouldn't be done below parallel um, because the joint angles and uh, muscle lengths that are specific to your sport are more accurately replicated in half squats and quarter squats, which I know triggers some people on the internet, but that's just what the science says, so. I saw a report on a recent study regarding strength training for the elderly. The conclusion was that training for power was more important than training for strength. Yeah, so there's definitely some, there's a few papers out there suggesting that improving muscular power is more, uh, is, uh, I guess, more closely related from a longevity standpoint than muscular strength, although that's not when you look at all of the studies, that's not the impression that you get, rather you see the differences in measuring power versus strength. So if you use things like a hand grip dynamometer that tends to be not as predictive, particularly in isolation of longevity, Uh, you can use that as part of like a a sarcopenia sort of uh, diagnostic uh, test. Um, But you also have to use like physical performance like gait speed, timed up and go sit to stand tests um, in order to really refine that but if you just in isolation looked at a hand grip test versus some other metric of power um, depending again how they measure it then you might find that power is more closely correlated to good or bad outcomes uh, than absolute muscle strength so it really just depends how you're measuring things but i think that overall resistance training for uh well, all individuals, and in particular, older individuals is recommended. When is the Barbell Medicine app dropping? Yeah, so we've been working on an app for like the last seven months, something like that. So when it's done, it'll drop, I'm hoping, you know, sometime before the third quarter of 2019. But so most people who come out with apps, there's just they're just junk, right? It's like, you know, a web based app that they kind of formatted to a phone and it's got some of their content on there, but the functionality is not very great and whatever. It's just junk. Um, this is not going to be that app. So there you go. Jordan, what causes the pump in muscles after doing high reps and high sets? Uh, I don't know if just high sets gives you a pump unless you're on very short rest, in which case the same mechanism that causes quote unquote pump in, uh, High reps, it's the same. It's this intra-set fatigue. These metabolic byproducts um, occur accrue locally, and that decreases the uh, ability of the muscle to relax and contract. And then also takes up space. There's A lot of blood uh, stuck in, in in the area, as well as water and stuff like that. So yeah, so the intra-set fatigue tends to cause this sort of localized pump and swelling. In 30 seconds or less, how would you explain to someone without medical background why CBD oil is not useful? Uh, No evidence suggests that over-the-counter CBD oil does anything. Only evidence to the contrary exists. I think that was 30 seconds or less. Um, but actually, it's interesting. So, you know, most there's a lot of people who are like CBD oil work for me. And I'm like, hey, that's cool, man. And, you know, I don't mean to patronize that patronize you. That's not the idea. It's not the intent here. The thing is that uncontrolled observation is useful for generating hypotheses. And then we have to like go and do the studies and look at the research and see like how applicable, you know, what fo- those findings are to the general population. So you can't just, hey, it worked for me. And so there you go. I'm recommending it. That's irresponsible. And your ability to, um, objectively, you know, recount your own experiences, uh, low. So with CBD oil, um, most of the studies, the actual good studies are done with Epidolex, Epido, uh, Epidolex. That's the, uh, prescription, uh, CBD oil that's used to treat two rare forms of seizures that has been shown to improve the reduce the rate of drop seizures in these two rare congenital forms of seizures doesn't work for all seizures doesn't work without being on other medications but it's been studied on anxiety makes tends to uh, not make anxiety any better with the a pretty significant risk of making it worse, doesn't work in depression, pretty significant risk of making it worse, doesn't work to improve appetite, doesn't work for pain, doesn't do anything clinically important for inflammation. There, you know, And that's prescription grade, right? And the over-the-counter stuff, so, so that's like the best you could get. Nobody in the over-the-counter world is making stuff better, better as far as from a purity standpoint, from a concentration standpoint, from a bioavailability standpoint, than the prescription stuff, okay? over the counter stuff not only now do you not do you have an unregulated market okay but you have like as far as like how much is in how much uh, um, uh you know actual active ingredient is in there but you don't know what else is in you don't know what else is in there and people say "Yeah, oh, but I trust this brand I'm like well why should, why would you trust this brand like do they have a certificate of good manufacturing process like do they have that stamp of approval uh you know are they uh, do they have for sport? Do they have other like informed consent, other sort of, you know, quality control things that, you know, you can go through to obtain that, that mark and, uh, no, they, they don't. So, you know, Nature's Way had a vitamin C thing that had actual anabolic steroids contaminated in there. They knew this because people ended up getting uh, like Hirsute, you, know, mi- you know, features like midline hair growth and voice deepening, et cetera, et cetera. Oxy, was it OxyCut? Had a bunch of people with liver failure um, due to contaminations. And so, I, and there's other also it just straight up risks to taking even the prescription grade CBD oil. And so, the you when you're weighing the risks and benefits um, you 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 only pick the you know the the treatment if the benefit outweighs the risk and if it doesn't then you you shouldn't and so if there's no reported benefit that you know reliably occurs in a substantial portion of the population and there's some risk and and, and cost uh then I don't think that's a smart move so yeah a CBD oil, it's a, look, man, if we made a CBD oil and we paid a bunch of people who who are relatively unscrupulous, <laughs> I don't mean to throw people under the bus, but whatever. To, to promote that, I can make a lot of money. Um, but I don't think that the evidence is there yet. And until it's there, I think I have to keep actively bringing people back to the science. And it's like, why are people so willing to embrace this when the evidence that's out there and there is evidence, people then say, oh, there's no evidence. Oh, oh, there's evidence. You just haven't looked. I have a systematic review on my desktop um, with over a hundred and something citations. So anyway, I don't think CBD oil or collagen protein are are useful supplements. Uh, Let's see. Is it dangerous to lift heavy weights after surgery for rectal prolapse? This is actually a good question. What should I, how (laughs) can I lift after surgery? Uh, I assume yes, that there's probably some risk in training in lifting or bearing down or producing force, uh, after that type of surgery. I mean, there's risk after any type of surgery. That being said, they did repair that problem. So the general recommendation is ask the surgeon when you're cleared to lift weights again. Um, and they'll probably give you a stock answer based on their experience and their level of, you know, risk averse, sort of, uh, that that sort of ratio there. And then you get to ask, like, okay, well, so let's say they say four to six weeks you can't exercise. And they're like, does that mean no exercise? Does that mean light exercise? Like, what are you worried about? And then uh, they give you more information and you're like, all right, well, there's a risk of being sedentary. And then there's a risk of, you know, this activity potentially complicating my surgery. So like, you got to weigh out those risks and benefits. I think that people often don't, consider the risk of being sedentary in this equation. And I think you should do that with your practitioner, but it's not possible to state, yeah, you can for sure train after this type of surgery in any sort of, in this scenario specifically, or even with confidence, if I was the doctor, like, cause we just don't know. There's only a handful of conditions like, uh, or procedures rather, that there's actually published data on this. And uh, that is not one of them, unfortunately. Walking hurts my hip, how to proceed. Would you recommend reducing the frequency and volume of walking? Uh, Maybe, Um, you know, this sort of injury, what do? I think that that kind of bears a more in-depth discussion. So what's been the history of this thing? Did it just come on? Uh, Has it been happening for a long period of time? Um, Have you ever had this before? Um, What do you think it is? Have you been previously diagnosed with this thing? Have you seen anybody about it? What makes it worse? What makes it better? Like all those things you take into consideration and then you try to figure out, all right, uh do i need to what do i need you know for for, from an assessment standpoint do i need to seek a higher level of care and then what should i do from there management wise so for this i have no idea what's going on with your hip uh if it only hurts when walking that would be an interesting deal i think that if you haven't seen anybody about that um and it's been going on for a while i would probably uh, you know see somebody on the other hand you could just be trolling me in which case Good job. Hey, Doc, any treatments for laryngeal tracheal stenosis aside from balloon dilation and inhalers? I have no idea. Yeah, I'm not e- ENT, so I have no clue. That is inter- I probably wouldn't ask a dude on Instagram about that. But hey, I appreciate that you trust me. That's cool. But yeah, I'm not an ENT. I have no idea. Is creatine equally useful for those using anabolic steroids um, or redundant? Uh, so interesting question. So is it redundant? No, because creatine and anabolic steroids don't do the same thing. Creatine imp- increases the energy store within a muscle. Anabolic steroids don't usually do that. Although some anabolic steroids Im- increase glycogen storage, but they don't inc- increase like creatine phosphate storage or creatine kinase enzyme activity or anything like that. So they don't, they're don't. they not redundant. That's different pathways. The creatine also tends to increase intramuscular water. Which is an anabolic stimulus. Um, most anabolic steroids don't do that. The way that creatine and anabolic steroids tend to kind of overlap is increasing in satellite cell myonuclei sort of signaling. Uh, that being said, there's no studies that have that have uh, like looked at uh, creatine use in people who are on anabolic steroids versus placebo on people who are on anabolic steroids. So I can't say definitively, but. I would imagine that the benefit is approximately the same. Uh, let's see. Do you think there is any benefit for from explosive training for a, a slow power lifter, so like jumps, Olympic lifts, et cetera? Um, no, not really. I mean, so I guess it just depends on context. If we talk about like, if we talk about the beginner in power lifter, so you're not really a power lifter, you just started your training Uh, I think that you should expose yourself to a wide variety of movements and rep ranges and velocities and all the sort of stuff. Give yourself like sampling, you know, you're just doing a lot of different stuff to improve your general physical abilities over a wide range of things like that. Uh, That being said, for a person who's more advanced in training, then no, doing the high velocity movements is typically not associated with improvements in low velocity strength. And I think that on some level it compromises the resources you have to train, you know, time-wise, and then also takes some non-zero sort of recovery resources away. So I probably wouldn't do that. Thoughts on developing an international list of competent medical practitioners. I've had many experiences with doctors who suggest patients don't train if they have any pain. It's hard to combat this. Yeah, I think that's unfortunate. I mean, I, I think the pain science Stuff is slowly working its way. You know, it's it's people are resistant to change, you know, in, in any case. New technology comes out, there's people resistant. New science comes out, people are resistant. And then, you know, gradually over time, there's a wave of change. So I don't think that the it's well, I don't think it's possible to undergo the task of like organizing a list of, yeah, these are all, you know, proficient, because how do you test for that? And how do you maintain <laughs> test for that. I mean, we can't even do it with these huge organizational bodies for like board certification and stuff like that. So, um, and then do that on an international level and then do it for pain. Mm, Yeah, that's, so I don't think it's possible. I rather, I think that informing the consumer on a level and then, you know, continuing to put out good information. That's, that's our role here on that. Should we treat a rib injury the same as any other, if the goal is to get back to training, how we were pre-injury? i mean i guess that depends how you define how you would normally treat an injury and then i it also depends what kind of rib injury do you have do you have a fracture and you know adjacent ribs Do you have flail chest <laughs> like <laughs> do you have a compound fracture with the rib just poking out or did you know your chiropractor tell you that you have a rib out of place and they have to put it back in which is definitively not the case or like <laughs> yeah so i don't know most of the, if you have rib pain and it's not due to an acute fracture, doesn't require like acute medical management, then you're, the idea is you would reduce intensity, uh, reduce volume. If you need to reduce, change the exercise, range of motion, etc. as needed so you can still train and then it'll get better eventually. That's, I mean, that's generally how we do it. How would you approach a client who is told they have no cartilage in their knee? Uh, Well, assuming they contacted me and wanted to train, I would see if they could squat. Yeah, because I mean, if you can't squat, I mean, you think about just a bodyweight squat. If you can't, well, it's not to just think about it. This is evidence-based too. So if somebody can't get up out of their chair, so uh, this is timed up and go. If you get up out of a chair, there's also a, let let me start this over so you guys know where I'm going with this. So to test for sarcopenia, like, you're looking sarcopenia is a disease of reduced muscle mass and muscle function muscle quality low physical performance so to test for this to test for this you can do things like uh, you know there's standardized metrics here one is a grip strength test one is a, this is a short performance physical battery you can do the the grip strength test or you can do the short performance physical battery which is like a timed up and go so like literally getting out of a chair and then starting to walk uh there's also the sit to stand so you have to sit to stand for five repetitions if you use your arms at all you failed Uh, then there's a balance test and there's a gait speed test and there's a uh climbing stairs so if somebody says if you know they say hey i've got no cartilage in my knees i'm like well can you squat and they say, well, I don't I don't know, I definitely don't think so. So then I'd probably back up and say, all right, well, let's get you in a chair and then stand up. And if they can, d- stand, if they pass the sit to stand test, then I'm probably going to have, I might have them try to walk some stairs. If they can do that, then I'm like, okay, cool. This person's not like grossly sarcopenic, you know, where they need a higher level of management than me as like a personal trainer, assuming that I wasn't a doctor. Um, and then if, so if they pass both those, you know, tests, then I'd be reasonably okay. Like, all right, let's do bodyweight squats and so i would try to do that and then if they can do that i'd probably progress them to either if they do that just fine i'd probably put them under a barbell if they if they have some struggle there i might do a goblet squat uh you know somewhere in the middle maybe i have them squat with a training bar or put them on a leg press you know something like that but I, I wouldn't use the no cartilage in your knees if you have knee pain a bunch of knee pain that's debilitating you can't do anything. Um, then you go down the treatment algorithm for knee pain. They need to be seen by somebody. They might be a candidate for knee replacements. They might be a candidate for other medications and, uh, and stuff like that. But you know, somebody who legitimately can't sit, you know, stand up out of a chair without assistance, you know, that's a problem. So you, you might have to back up and find this out. Does overshooting deadlifts RPE make one more vulnerable to catching a cold? I mean, if you overshoot a deadlift RPE, uh in an area where there's a bunch of airborne uh viral particles, sure. Otherwise, no. Looking good, Doc. Is there a certain part of the spine that if curved during a deadlift is sufficient to cause injury? No. No. In fact, I just I did a podcast this morning with weightlifting with a philosophical weightlifting or something like that. Uh in any event, so we talked about this a little bit. In order to in the bipedal organization, so standing on two feet, bending over to pick something up, in order to do that with heavy, heavy loads, there's going to be lumbar flexion, just period. So if you can't do it with you know out any lumbar flexion. This has been studied a few different times. So in squatting and deadlifting, like there's gonna be some amount of lumbar flexion. You might not see it with the naked eye because it's small and whatever, but that's how you recruit uh, all the muscle fibers from you know, that's how that's how it's done. So in any event, if part of your back happens to round. It doesn't just spontaneously explode. You know, that's not how injury occurs. The injury occurs by increasing the acute uh, on chronic workload too quickly. So increasing the amount of training and fatigue that you're done compared to the pr- previous um, or, uh, or uh, uh, just not being strong in general. And um, those are the two biggest predictors of injury, but not like this mechanical thing that doesn't really... It doesn't really follow. Jordan, do you still recommend best belts for powerlifting belts? I'm looking for a new one as my last one was stolen. Oh, t- dang, man, it's terrible. Yeah, I like my best belts. I've had it since 2012. Jordan, what are your recommendations on caffeine intake? Should it be cycled? If so, would it be beneficial to take caffeine? Uh yeah, so the recommended ergogenic or beneficial dose of caffeine. Um, from a physical performance standpoint, varies from three to nine milligrams per kilogram body weight based on tolerance, previous exposure, personal preference, et cetera. Um, as far as does that dose need to go up over time to continue to provide an ergogenic aid, we don't really know. Um, I don't necessarily think you need to cycle it unless you're uh, it's affecting your sleep. Yeah. So I don't think it matters. High blood pressure problems in well-conditioned athlete. Do you see this commonly? Uh no. Not at all. I think um, most people. So all exercise causes blood pressure to go to increase during exercise. There's not a form of exercise that causes blood pressure to drop while you do it. Um, we know that no exercise that has been studied, so resistance training, aerobic training, or you know high intensity interval training, etc., none of those increase resting blood pressure. They all decrease resting blood pressure. Uh, And there's really no difference between aerobic training and resistance training as far as the magnitude of blood pressure drop. This is based on this most recent study, Nacy et al. They reviewed 391 studies, half of them on uh, blood pressure medications, half of them on exercise and looked at like how they compared. Actually looked like exercise tended to lower blood pressure more in those who were hypertensive than those who were taking the prescribed medications in any event as a whole nother thing that we talk about in the seminar more in depth as far as blood pressure in well-conditioned athletes there are other reasons besides like relative you know other than obesity other than fitness level etc that can increase blood pressure so i mean people with alcohol like substance use uh, problems can have high blood pressure people with familial like uh, hypertension, pheochromocytoma. Uh, so, if, in a well-conditioned athlete, you'd want to rule out these sort of primary causes of uh, you Khan know, syndrome, etc. of uh, of high blood pressure. Um, and if not, if there's no cause there, then you would uh, you would set chalk it up as secondary, and then you treat it. You know, anything you were looking looking forward to in Berlin. Uh, I haven't actually researched uh, Berlin a lot, so I don't know what's there. But, you know, maybe some Verst and uh, Stein. Jordan had a call with Michael Ray. Oh, Dr. Ray, yeah, he uh, helps do our uh, pain and rehab stuff. Uh, I had a call with Michael Ray and it was great, excited to start squatting again and not after not being able to for months. Yeah, that's great. So I, I think, you know, most of, the, I understand being frustrated with pain. Um, you know, I, the worst thing that I ever dealt with from training or like that affected my training in April, oh shoot this must've been 2000, this must've been 2015, yeah. So I remember spring break was like February. So Austin and I flew out to Seattle for a seminar and then uh, I drove, uh, flew down to Santa Cruz for another seminar that I did. And then I went down to San Diego to see my brother. Now, I deadlifted on Camp Pendleton. They had those weird dodecahedron plates or whatever. And I think it was like 585 or something. I think I tweaked my back a little bit, but I didn't think any, anything of it because that's happened and whatever. it go away in a few days. I had this like hip pain. Um, oh, excuse me. I had this hip pain. It's like actually butt pain, Left my left glute. It's like every time I would squat below parallel and every time I would try to deadlift from the floor, it felt like my glute was literally going to rip off the bone and uh that lasted so that must have been february that lasted through had to be may um it was terrible and uh honestly what i i wish that i could have done at the time i wish that i had access to people who were like really keyed up on this pain science stuff and really good at rehabbing people back into lifting i mean i did i saw a chiropractor i saw a physical therapist i saw i did everything because i just got sick of it like i didn't know what to do um and i ha- had a really tough time managing it on my own but yeah it would have been nice if uh i knew about michael ray and Derek miles at that point and i knew how to reach them so if you guys have an injury and it's really bothering you it's you know affecting something that you enjoy enough to like watch a dude like me on Instagram talk about, <laughs> like, then I I would I would highly recommend uh, um, contacting Michael Ray, Derek Miles. Send us an email, info.barbellmedicine.com, and we'll get you sorted. Um, you know, it may sound like an advertisement, but I, I think that there's a huge need for this, and and I would rather you guys get fixed now and start back training than just you know continue to wallow uh, away here. You know, all right. Do you think we should keep track of the macros and vegetables when we're on a cut? I think that if you are dieting and you're trying to lose weight that you need to control for total calories. And I think that I would track everything, including vegetables. Yeah. It's unlikely you're going to overeat on vegetables. That's certainly true, but it's not impossible, especially in the context of eating other foods. I got to know two stroke Yamaha Banshee or four stroke YZ 250. So, both of those are four wheelers. So, if you guys don't know this, if you guys are just getting into the barbell medicine thing, I used to race dirt bikes for a long time. I got my first dirt bike when I was, I must have been 14. See, Yeah, 14. And then I raced until last time I, r- I raced was, tw- I was 25. So, about a decade. Yeah. Uh, I did, don't ride four wheelers, just, just two wheelers. And, uh, I raced most of the time when it was two strokes. Now they're all four strokes. I had tail end of my career it was four strokes. Um, if I had to go riding right now, I'd pick a four stroke just cause it's easy, but you know, I wish two strokes would make a comeback. What is your take on vertical jump strength? I know Ripito said that vertical jump height can only be increased a few inches with genetics being the limiting factor uh yeah so i don't really know what the question is what is your take on vertical jump strength i mean i guess i'll, I'll roll with that so <sighs> vertical jump so jumping running sprinting uh punching kicking throw like all this stuff's high velocity force production it's not low velocity force production so we know that uh, in order to increase high velocity force production you would want a fiber type shift from type to A fibers, type two B fibers, um, you'd want that to occur. Those tend to be more fast twitchy kind of, although there's been some talk of like actually doing away with this nomenclature, but if we back up even further, there's two major types of muscle fibers, flow twitch, fast twitch, and the fast twitch, there's the really three types, type A, which is like these, uh, there's like fatigue, well, they're fatigue resistant. They, you tend to be able to do like more reps, uh there's still a pretty high force production but they're fatigue resistant type b tend to be like really fatigue really quickly but very very high velocity uh and then type x are like just untrained undifferentiated um there's you know depending on who you read you get different kind of takes on that uh so and different names so it's ugh. anyway that's kind of that's kind of a sticky sticky point but if we think about this like type 2b fibers are like the high velocity force production fibers type 2a fibers are low velocity uh, force production, you would try to train those type 2B fibers and you would try to get some of those type 2A fibers to convert over to type 2B fibers. And we actually see that when we train people with high, uh, using high-velocity force production. And the only way to train high-velocity force production is to train high-velocity. You can't do heavy, slow reps and get high-velocity force production. So if you wanted to improve vertical jump, you would, use, you would practice the jump. Uh, you would also train at high velocities, uh so you know things less you know that 30 to 60 percent range probably for for loading you know for exercises on like the squat and you would probably do half squats not entirely not universally but because those joint angles are more specific to the jump than a full depth squat so because that's specific to the actual task so i know it kind of went around uh, others things we have decent data on for improving vertical jump be like uh, eccentric hamstring strengthening so like a nordic hamstring curl that tends to work or like an eccentric on a glute ham raise also hip thrusts tends to be beneficial for sprinting um maybe jumping too so anyway yeah it's kind of like a haphazard approach there got into the weeds on the muscle fiber type but things are changing you know Hey, Jordan, I'm struggling with rounding of the lower back during the descent of my squat. Do you have any suggestions on fixing this? I'm not sure it's a problem per se, but it looks terrible. Yeah, without seeing it, I can't really comment on it. Uh, you might try to lower the weight and it may be that you're trying to stay too vertical. And then at the bottom, you you know, kind of round because you need to get below parallel. So you might try bending over more um you might also not be pushing your knees for, far enough forward and so therefore if you're keeping your knees back and you're you know still trying to go down you may perceive that you're not low enough and then round over i don't know so it depends it depends without, without seeing it. it's hard but the two two things i see most commonly are people trying to stay too vertical so you could try to bend over a little bit more uh alternatively you can try to push your knees a little further forward forward and out. Should resting heart rate be considered with BMI and waist circumference with regards to increased risk from being obese? Uh, there's some evidence on heart rate, uh, resting heart rate, as far as total morbidity mortality, but it's not reliably correlated enough to obesity. Meaning that being obese necessarily increases your resting heart rate enough to use that as sort of any sort of metric. So no to that. Jordan, I love the barbell medicine stuff. I'm just wrapping up the bridge and going to the GPP endurance template. I don't see any arm or ab work like I'm used to on the bridge. Can I add them on GPP days? You could, although I would just say that, you know, during the endurance template, you're doing a lot of other work and you, you know, I don't know what your recovery resources are like right now. So you're probably fine, especially if you've already done it on the bridge, but just be cautious there. Jordan, have you ever considered becoming a professor at a university? Oh, yeah, I have tons of Blazers. And so I think that, uh, you know, that would be fun. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think there's some other stuff that I want to do besides teaching classes now, but maybe later. You've mentioned some good flashcard-type websites for studying before. What were the names again? I think it's flashcardmachine.com. Anki usually has a bunch of flashcard sets already made on popular topics. And then uh, for med-, med-, med school, I used uh, Firecracker. Let's see... What's the relationship between hypertrophy and strength? Uh, Yeah, so I think Brandon uh, asked, you asked this on our Facebook group the other day, Uh, increase muscle cross-sectional area gives you greater uh, force production potential strength though is specific strength is force production measured in a specific context so just a bigger muscle doesn't necessarily mean that you can produce more force in a particular context where you're untrained but it definitely increases your potential to produce force in contexts that you can later become trained in um one of the biggest predictors of how much force you can produce is the size muscle cross-sectional area seems to be evidence showing that nordic hamstring curls may reduce injury in athletes is this true that's what we've seen yes What is the reasoning behind this, you think? Yeah, so Nordic hamstring curls, basically an eccentric sort of aspect of the glute ham raise. I've been doing them a bunch. Um, The, what is the relationship? Yeah, it improves your strength, improves eccentric hamstring strength, which tends to be very involved in most sports that are uh, running based, have any sort of running component um, or hip extension component, which are again, most sports. So um, yeah, it makes you stronger, which we know being stronger reduces injury risk. So that would be the mechanism. Did you dye your hair? No, this is natural, baby. Natural. Serious question, outside of general best practices for nutrition fitness guidelines, is anything you could recommend for improved sexual performance? Hmm. Yeah, no, I think we're going to move along. <laughs> what program would you recommend running after completing the 12-week strength program? Well, it just depends what you want to do. So, yeah our templates especially the updated no there's not even updates these are new templates I keep I feel like I keep mentioning this and people are going to be like where are they yeah dude uh we they're near completion the idea is to have this sort of pathway right so you everybody comes in all these um you come in either through the beginner template through the bridge template um and then you get to go into whatever different pathway or pathways that excite you. So if there are three main pillars of physical development, we'll just say that there's hypertrophy, there's strength, there's conditioning, then you can go divert down the hypertrophy path. You could do our uh, bodybuilding, you know, hypertrophy program one. And then after you finish that, hypertrophy program two, if you want to do strength, you can do the strength, the strength one template or strength two, which is it's our 12 week strength It's now become our powerlifting uh, power two. And there's also our 12 week press program, which is now become our strength lifting two program. And then after that, you could go to our strength three program. If you wanted to blend, then there's the power building programs. If you wanted to do conditioning, you could do our, the CrossFit, that hybrid templates coming out. It's gonna be called the Titan template, uh, teamed up with Jess Griffith on, uh, or our general strength and conditioning template. If you wanted a pure endurance bias, you can do our endurance template. Uh, got a new Olympic weightlifting template. And then if you were injured, then you would circle back around either to the latter half of the beginner template, which I think is would be a really good back, like on, on-ramp back into kind of picking your own adventure. But to answer your question, what to do after a 12-week strength, well, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? You could repeat it. You could do another one of our strength templates. You could do the hypertrophy template. I mean, it just depends what you want, what's your timeline and uh, stuff like that. See, had an RD come speak at my work, said that we should focus our protein intake on plant-based over animal. I thought we should just be using the PDCAAS, which stands for protein-derived, protein digestibility-corrected amino acid score to judge quality of proteins. I mean, she's probably not making that argument based on the quality of proteins or muscle protein synthesis. You can make an argument from a sustainability standpoint, from, uh, uh, you know, feeding the world standpoint that, you know, if we move to more plant-based stuff, perhaps that's better supported. Sure. I think that if most folks need to eat more plants, period, uh, most folks need to eat more plants and uh, less calories, period. But from a performance standpoint, from a training standpoint, I think that focusing your protein intake on lean protein sources uh, is a reasonable idea. You can get those from animals you can get them from plants too. Um, that would be the idea. Dr. Feigenbaum, I'm really looking forward to the power building template. I'm curious to see how the programming differs from the hypertrophy templates. Oh yeah, it's gonna be good. I I just think that for power building, you're making compromises in your training, not necessarily bad compromises, but compromises nonetheless. You're making compromises in your training that reflect your prioritization of the power lifts, squat, the bench, deadlift. If you didn't care about those lifts at all, then maybe you would have a wider movement variety. But if you do care about those lifts, you know, we maybe call that power building. All right. In any event, we've been here for an hour. So thank you for watching on Instagram, YouTube. If you're listening to this on iTunes, thank you. Or wherever you get your podcast from, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps us out. And we'll catch you guys next time. Everybody have a good weekend. See ya. I just want to let you know that we're going to have you start the lecture with Yuri (laughs) Fleck. We're going to have you start the lecture uh, series with uh, how to be a dad. Are you prepared to present on this? My novice, my novice uh, journey as a father. You're just adding 24 hours. Add five milliliters of breast milk. (laughs) Until he's way overweight. Did you you named your child Jordan? I'm told. Yeah. (laughs) Jordan. What I.e. No why. No why.